to John 17. We'll be saying that a few more times. We will be in John 17 this morning and next week as well. Let us hear the word of God, verses 20 through 23. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Amen. Praise be to God, this glorious word. Let us praise. Pray together. O Lord our God, we come before you. Uh, We come out of the world. Uh, We come Uh, In many cases, battle-weary and worn, uh, sin and its oppression is all around us, and our flesh is at war within us. Father, we come to the one who is great and glorious, to the God over all, who we have been reminded even earlier in the service, the God of mercy, the God who has delivered us out of the house of bondage, the bondage of sin brought us into your family given us life. Father, we come needing your refreshment and blessing through your word, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living word. Lord, bless that which we now do. Magnify the name of Christ, and Lord, instruct our hearts by the working of your spirit, both in the sound of the word going forth, as well as our hearing it, and the impact it would have within us in the inner man. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to refer to Sinclair Ferguson a couple times during the sermon. It'll be apparent that uh, he's been a source of blessing, and indeed he is. I commend to you any and all of his works. But Sinclair Ferguson, reflecting on the upper room in uh, this passage in particular, has made the observation that when we come to the end of the study of a book, we, we frequently think we, how we have only just been scraping the surface we're not close to the end of John. It's approaching, but we still have that sense that there's just so much more in what we've already covered. There's so much more to this Gospel of John. Uh, and perhaps we might say, you know, I think now we're, we're ready really to start you know, looking at this book more thoroughly. It was certainly my experience when I preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the very first book I preached through when I was licensed. Uh, bold, perhaps foolish, to undertake such a book. I was about halfway in, and it was, ah. Um, then the Lord gave me an opportunity to preach it in two other occasions as well. But um, perhaps you've had that experience. You know, you're reading something in depth, and you get to the end of it, and you say, okay, now I'm really to go back and read it again. Um, and I'm sure I'll profit from this. And there's certainly occasions where there are books worthy of reading and reading and reading again. That is especially true with the Word of God. But as we reflect on that, I think we find ourselves in that situation as we're coming to the end of the account of the events in the upper room. We've only scraped the service. We've only begun to understand 
all that took place that evening. And surely this is true as we draw near to the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer. This prayer, as uh, we come to these verses, verses 20 through 26, um, uh, we'll be taking it to this week and the next two weeks. So we're going to take these. We're, we're coming to the close of Jesus' prayer. And we noted when we begin looking at the prayer that the structure follows that, that the high priest would have taken, undertaken for himself as he would pray in preparation for going in on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies. He prayed for himself. He prayed for his co-laborers, the other priestly families. And then he would pray for all of Israel. We've heard Jesus pray from the outset for himself what lies ahead of him, Gethsemane, Golgotha, the grave, the resurrection, and the ascension. The Lamb of God who goes to take away the sin of the world will offers himself as a sacrifice to fully satisfy divine justice. Jesus will soon atone for the sins of his people, and he will accomplish what all the blood of bulls and rams and lambs and goats never could have done. He will accomplish in one single sacrifice. And so we find Jesus uh, in preparation for the fulfillment, uh, the accomplishment of what the Day of Atonement appointed to. We find him praying for himself. We just concluded the section with verse 19 of him praying for his co-laborers, the, the apostles, the disciples, as we refer to them. These are those who've been with him from the beginning, as John records back in chapter 15, verse 27. He's prayed for those who have labored with him, walked with him, stayed with him, even as many others were turning and walking away. Um, even Judas that very night going out, here's 11 who remain, and Jesus prays for them. And in the moving from praying for them into the section of praying for others, we find his reference to them once more. Because these are the ones who are commissioned by him. These are the ones, uh, even as we saw in the previous package, uh, passage, these are the sent ones in, in the most significant sense of that, sense of that word. We're sent, uh, particularly as the church was sent into the world, but these men were sent as apostles which is the very meaning of sent ones, Christ sending them. And they're going to go forth with the gospel of the message, and they're going to proclaim all that Christ has entrusted to them. But then Jesus closing his prayer, he expands his focus far beyond even his time on the earth. He will ascend to the Father. He, he prays then even for that period of time with the apostles as uh, they will be making known as they will testify of Christ to the world. He prays for that, but he prays beyond even that time. For those apostles will write the scriptures. And indeed, down through the generations, there have been many, many as Jesus said, that they, will, they believe in Christ through their word. What a marvelous thing. We, we're assembled here. We've not met the apostles, but we have the letters of the apostles. We have the inspired scriptures that the apostles and their very closest associates have written. And we believe what we believe about God and Christ Jesus and the, the salvation that he has secured for us because of these men and the Lord's using of them. Luke records the, uh, the beginning of the fulfillment of this prayer in the Acts of the Apostles. When Jesus' prayer goes uh, beyond this record of Scripture. The record of church history is the record of Jesus' prayer being answered. 
over the past 2,000 years and up even to and now and beyond. However many more days that shall be, Jesus' prayer is being answered. My friend, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your faith rests upon him alone for your salvation, Jesus' prayer has been answered in you. And you can stay, say with me, Jesus was praying for me. Just think about that. We're reading, and we have this before, it says an inspired portion of John's gospel. And we could say, I read that. Verse 20, and Jesus was praying for me. That's astounding. And indeed he was. Because even as he goes to the cross, all our names, all those whom the Father has given him, they're written on his hands, as the scripture says. He went for his people. So Jesus' prayer then gives us remarkable insight into Jesus' heart. We've noted this, and we've sought to draw applications of things that should be important to us. Uh, what, what moved and animated him as he's going to the cross? Uh, what his will is for the church after he has ascended to the right hand of the Father? We can look at this prayer and know what the will of God is for us in Christ as the church. This morning we want to learn from this a theme We'll learn from Jesus what we should pursue, the spread of the gospel, the gathering of Jesus' sheep, the unity in the church, and the glory of God. And you see the four heads, the four main points follow along that. First, the, the great gathering of Jesus' sheep. Secondly, the unity is a mark of the church. Thirdly, united so that the world may believe. And then briefly, we'll close with the blessing Christian fellowship, the, the culmination or the outcome of what Christ has prayed for and what Christ accomplished. We begin then with a great gathering of Jesus' sheep. Again, verse 20, we read and we hear Jesus praying, I do not pray for these only, that is the 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus looks beyond those 11 who remained with him that night in the upper room or perhaps they're making their way even out of the Garden of Gethsemane. The scripture is not clear. and We don't need to spend too much time pondering that. But he's praying. Perhaps they're in the garden now and he's praying. But he's praying for that multitude. Indeed, it's a multitude, as we will soon see. That multitude who will be gathered out of the world as the 11 go forth preaching Christ and him crucified. From the Old Testaments, the prophecies, even the one we've heard this morning from Isaiah 53, proclaiming these texts as the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes, given them understanding to connect the things they've heard from Jesus, the things they see in him, and proclaim these things to the world around them, particularly their own land and then beyond. What's their message? Is that what Paul says, and what we should proclaim? Jesus Christ and him crucified, the only hope of glory. That is to say, the only hope of heaven, the only hope of righteousness, the only hope of salvation. It's Christ and him crucified. This is not a new emphasis in what Jesus has said. If we turn back in John uh, chapter 10, the passage that we think of the, the account of Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. Look at chapter 10 and verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by them. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. We hear even some of that in the prayer, where we're at right now in John 17. He says, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here's the cross. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also. 
I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Here is Jesus' declaration of his plan, his grand purpose through this span of history, that he will be gathering from other folds, that is to say, outside of Israel, as we'll see in just a moment from other passages. But to underscore this further, look with me at Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, verse 24, Jesus has gone to Nazareth, uh, his uh, city of his childhood, it's, uh, the town that he has grown up in, and he's uh, read from Isaiah. He's proclaimed that he is the fulfillment of this passage, and the people have uh, been offended at that, and they, they want to drive him away. And we read in Luke 4, and verse 24, these words. And, they, and he answered and said, Surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath. This is a Gentile region. He says, even in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, he went to her, and if you remember the story, God multiplied the little flour and oil that she had, and they were sustained. Not just Elijah the prophet, but indeed the widow was sustained and her son. And then Jesus goes on, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And if you look at that account, Naaman's just not, he's not just healed from leprosy. That's a picture of the internal spiritual reality that he's been delivered from his sin. He goes home as a, a God-fearing man. He goes home back to his Syrian land as one who will worship God throughout his days for the great mercy that God has shown him, the work that God has done, not just in his flesh, but is in his heart. And what are these two accounts? Jesus is saying this. These are Gentile people. God made provision for a widow in Sidon. God healed Naaman, the leper of Syria. Even here we see God's plan for the nations. Now, in the days of Israel, the days in which Jesus was ministering, were the same as these days. Israel's heart was hardened against God. When God did these things, there was a great famine in the land because of the hardness of Israel's heart. God was visiting judgment upon them to chasten them, to awaken them, to rouse them. But indeed, all this is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham that we saw back in Genesis when we were there uh, several years ago. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. God promises to him, uh, we'll go from there to chapter 15, but in Genesis 12, God promises to him, to Abraham, called Abram at this point, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The blessing isn't just for Abraham. God's telling him the blessing that comes to Abraham, and indeed through Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so when we go over to chapter 15, God comes to Abraham again. And in verse 5, he, that is God, brought him outside. Obviously, it's nighttime. And he said, look now to the heavens and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Abraham has no child of promise at this point. But God says, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven. But if we flip over to Genesis 22... 
This is the account of when God requires Abraham to take up his son Isaac, his only son Isaac, and to sacrifice him. He goes with Isaac and the bundle of wood and the knife. They go up on the mountain that God has appointed. Wonderfully, amazingly, Isaac submits to him. His father binds him. He lays him on the wood on the altar. He takes up the knife to slay his son, and God stays his hand and then provides a lamb in the thicket. And God says on that occasion, verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 16, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Here's echoes pointing to Christ. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we don't have to wonder who that seed is because Paul, uh, in exposition of that text, tells us in Galatians 3, in verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed there were promises made. It's through this seed that the blessing comes. And notice Paul's very specific. He does not say, talking about God, he does not say into seeds, that is, all the physical descendants of Abraham, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Abraham's seed, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob to Judah, eventually the line of David, all the way down, both Mary and Joseph of the line of David, Mary most particularly the mother of our Lord and his humanity. She is the woman by whom the seed will come, as we saw in Genesis 3, who will crush the serpent's head, even though he bruises his heel. He is the seed that was foretold to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so it is, through Christ and to Christ, salvation comes to a host as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand and the seashore. Children, have you ever been to the beach? I hope that you have. We live in the ocean state. And you go to the beach and, and you look at the sand and, and just maybe you got a little a toy shovel or something and you scoop up, up that sand. How long would it take to count the individual grains of sand and just that one little shovelful. And what would be the number? I don't even want to guess. I'm sure it would be thousands of thousands, right, of grains of sand and a little shovelful. But there's a whole seashore of sand, and it goes down at depth. I'm sure some scientists and mathematician have you know, taken, quantified what's in something and figured the volume and come up with some number, and it would be massive number. How many grains of sand are on the seashore? The point isn't literally to take that number. God is saying it's an innumerable host. So will be the descendants of Abraham. Who are the descendants of Abraham? They are those who, like Abraham, believed God and was accounted to them as righteousness. And this believing of God comes through the testimony of these men that are in the room. It began with them preaching the gospel of Christ to the nations. And so it is that we've seen, we've just taken this look backwards, of how God had a plan from before all creation, that from Adam's race, Jesus, the second Adam, would come and redeem a people to his Father. And it is for these that Jesus prays. He's praying for these ones that God has been foretelling and foretelling down through the ages to Abraham, through the prophets, time and again. This host will come to God by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of God, 
proclaimed through the church. And it began with the apostles at Pentecost. I made reference to this earlier just very in passing that we see Jesus' prayer beginning to be fulfilled in the book of Acts. As Luke records, these men going out full of the Spirit, being used of God, and on Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out in great measure upon the church, thousands are added to the church, and that's just the beginning. And thus it has been even unto our day. Jesus' prayer being answered. But in addition, as we saw earlier, when Jesus was telling them in chapter 16 that he would give them the Holy Spirit, that he would enable them to recall the things that he said and to record these things and bring it to their memory and that they would understand them. And uh, you will see um, as we move on in John's gospel that things happen. Jesus says things. And then we're told after the resurrection, they understood what it meant. There are going to be things that will come to their mind. This is the promise that Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit moved these men along to write the scriptures of the New Testament. The gospel was set down and preserved and it has been proclaimed to the nations ever since that day, even unto this day. And so it is that sinners are believing in Jesus through their word, these 11 men. Are we not blessed? We, here we are in John's gospel. John was in that upper room. John was the one who lay back upon the breast of Jesus, asking who it was that was indicated that one of them would betray him. And what we see then, as Jesus prays, is then the fulfillment. Just as Jesus said, Christ is building his church so that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The good shepherd has been and is calling his sheep from the Jews first, and then the Gentiles, as we've just looked, just in a very slight manner, there was hints, indications, that it wasn't just the Jews. If you go to the Proverbs, you'll, I mean, in the Psalms, you'll see time and again through the psalmist that he talks about Christ for the nation, the foretold one, that it would be for the nations, that the nations would be blessed, that the gospel would go out even to the Gentiles. And so it is. It was with the Jews first. And then beginning in Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then even to the ends of the earth. Even in that first generation, earlier this morning, we, we heard the law's loud thunder. We, we heard the, the character of God, the, the standard of his holiness and righteousness, and we were reminded that apart from Christ, we are guilty sinners. We stand condemned. And then we heard that it is in and by and through the Lord Jesus Christ that such sinners as we are can be saved. And there's no other way for sinners to be saved but through the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is true for us, my friend, the only way to join this great host of the redeemed, uh, to become part of Abraham's uh, descendants, this innumerable uh, company of saints, is through the word of God as given through the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what do we do? So we gather week by week. We come to bless the name of the Lord our God, to magnify his name, that he would seek us out when we were far from him, that he would come and subdue us as rebels, bring us into his household of faith, and not just accept us as servants or slaves to put us to work there, but he would own us as his children. What Amazing grace. This is what Jesus prayed for. This is what Jesus has been accomplished. If you're redeemed, Jesus' prayer that night has been answered in you. And we should have every confidence and hope that he will continue 
to call to himself a people. Continue as we are faithful. And that brings us to our second point, that unity is a mark of the church. In verses 21 through 23, Jesus prays for this unity in the church. He says that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. We've seen throughout John's account how Jesus declared, I and the Father are one. I've been sent from the Father. I proclaim the will of the, the word of the Father. I do the will of the Father. I do the works of the Father. We have this remarkable unity described. And here in Jesus' prayer, he is speaking of it once again. Father, you are in me and I in you. This is language of the Trinity. They are one in a way that we must honestly say that we cannot fully comprehend how three persons can be one God. It's beyond our understanding. We would have to be God to fully comprehend the realities of who the Trinity are. But we do see something, and here we hear it in Jesus' prayer, that they, those whom you've given to me, the church, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. Unity is something that is often sought, and for good reason. Uh, Jesus prayed for it. Uh, Jesus brings it about, and it is a blessing to behold. Um, in my lifetime, and, and that of many of you, there was this, this big push for ecumen or ecumenism. That's a fun word to say. There was this ecumenical movement, uh, even of Roman Catholics and Protestants coming together, and there were various compromises that were made. This word ecumenism comes from the Greek word that means to inhabit the world. And thus we have this idea of the, of the worldwide unity amongst those who profess Christ. But what the world and, and these men have pushed for is really the idea of focused on bureaucratic structures, hierarchical structures of, of men in various gradations and, and power structures. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The text before us, Sinclair Ferguson notes, is often cited, but he says, quote, Jesus was not thinking here of a grand worldwide organizational unity. That's not what Jesus is about. Ferguson goes on, um, not quoting now, but following him, how men love to build towers. This, this is really my assessment. Men love to build towers for themselves, reaching to the heavens. You get the illusion, the Tower of Babel, you know, after the flood, and they're all of one language, and they're saying, we'll build a heaven up into God. We'll go and reach God. That's something of what's at work in the ecumenical movement of men. But Ferguson goes on to say, it is not organization, but spiritual vitality that makes the church able to withstand the gates of Hades. The king of unity, Jesus, envisages a pattern after the personal mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Just as the Father and the Son live together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, so, since every believer is indwelt by that same Spirit, our fellowship begins to mirror the Trinity's. That is astounding. That is breathtaking. That as the Spirit works in us, our unity begins to mirror that of the Trinity. There are many organizations 
and even in our around us, there's clubs and teams and, and you know athletic teams. I'm thinking of. There's just all kinds of things that you can join and be a part of, and and they all enjoy some level of camaraderie uh, rooted in, in a, a pursuit of a common goal, whatever they're about. However, the unity of Christians is unique. It has so much more to it. It has its origin in God. And therefore, it's supernatural. It is of God, not of man. It is not something that man can accomplish. And thus the ecumenical movement was, it was off on the wrong foot to begin with. It was destined to fail as it set out. Christ brings unity. That's what he's praying for. Christ is the one who accomplishes this unity within his people. And this is what Jesus is praying for. This unity is patterned then after uh, God and who he is in his very character. And this unity is only possible by the individual members of the church having the Holy Spirit within them. And so if you have that, you know what it's like. We gather for fellowship. We do things together. We uh, enjoy community. We talk about the things of the Lord, the things that the Word that the Lord is doing in our lives, and and we we have. There's a bond. There's something remarkable that happens because we have a common bond in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is within us. Listen to what Paul says to the Colossians. If you turn with me to Colossians three. In verse 19, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 3.19, or 3.9, Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, modern context, Red Sox, Yankees, Patriots, none of that, not in this household, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, Paul goes on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, Meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. But But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Paul is describing what unity is. He talks about the realities of Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, enslaved, free, but in Christ, we are one. And in those that are one in Christ, what does this unity looks like? look like? It's tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and above all, love, which is the bond of perfection. This is the unity that Jesus prayed for. Now, you look at verse 11, you have these categories that were realities in that day. We can think of equivalents here today. I've alluded to some of those. But these are realities of the first century. And Paul is teaching that because Christ is all in all, the unity found in Christ removes the barriers made by man. 
We don't look at one another the way the world does. This is what James does. He rebukes the church. He says, don't see a rich man come in and, and show him honor and give him the place of honor because he's richly dressed. And then the poor man comes in and you say, well, sit over here at my feet. He rebukes the church. That's, that should not be founded. We don't see rich and poor, black and white, uh, American, uh, whatever nation, where we see Christ in one another. We belong to Jesus, and when we see others who belong to Jesus, we love them. As I've said to you before, there's two categories. We'll use the language here. Those who belong to Jesus and those who don't. Those who have been redeemed and those who have not. Those who have Christ, those who need to hear about Christ. This is the only categories there are. And indeed, if we're in Christ, we welcome one another. We relate to one another after the matter, manner of which Paul speaks of here in Colossians 3. Jesus is our all in all. When the Spirit of Christ lives in our hearts, we have a bond of fellowship and love that the world cannot know. What we have in Christ, the world cannot know. It's unknown to them. It's impossible for them to replicate it or to fake it. What we have is from above. As I said earlier, it's supernatural. Listen to me. Sometimes when we gather together, you might come in here thinking, I, I don't really belong here. I mean, I just, if these people knew what I was really like, they wouldn't welcome me. But that's just said in Christ. We're all like whatever. Whatever we assume we are and they're not, no, we are all what? Sinners saved by grace. We come in here every week, hopefully ready to confess our sins because we have sinned, even this morning, even as we sit here. We're all constantly and continually in need of a Savior. That's a common bond we have. And so we're gracious and forbearing and loving with one another because we have this common bond, a common Savior. We're all sinners made one by Christ, by grace alone. It is true that when the church gathers across the globe that uh, we have external realities. i got a dear friend of mine, a uh, uh, formerly a PCA minister, uh, I think he's in the ARP now, he's in Africa, in Uganda. And he's posting pictures on social media. He stands out. It reminds me when we went to Haiti back in 2006, you know. Um, and I remember growing out on Laganau, the island, and riding in the truck with the others are going to, to serve with. And the little children, as we'd pass through the village, they were, their skin was so incredibly dark. And they see us, and what are they crying out? Le Blanc, Le Blanc, which is the white, the white. It stood out, and yet, as we were with the men that we were teaching, we saw no skin color. These were brothers in Christ, and it was amazing. I've just met these men, and yet because of Christ in me, love, fellowship, unity, camaraderie, a caring, this is what Christ has accomplished. As the Father and the Son are one, he makes us one, no matter where we may go. Ethnicity, education, age, gender, social standing, none of those things have any bearing. We're one in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says the result is that the differences only serve to highlight the beauty of the unity of grace that prevails. Listen to that again. Ferguson says the result is that the differences only serve to highlight the beauty of the unity of grace that prevails. Do you see this Savior? who has accomplished this. 
Do you see how remarkable Christ is? How he stands apart and alone. There's no other Savior like him. There's no other one able to accomplish what he's accomplished. Here we have God come down in the flesh. God come into our midst in order to save the children of Adam. Image bearers, made after the image of God, to bring us out of the world, out of, the sin, out of sin and iniquity, and bring us to the Father. This is what Christ has accomplished. Men strive hard to bring unity and peace, but men always fail. It is in Christ alone that we can have unity. Christ alone reconciles us to God and therefore reconciles us one to another. And now he has given us a ministry of reconciliation, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Before we go on, let's apply this. Beloved children of God, do not think less of yourself than is fitting. But Jesus Christ is your Savior. God has joined you to himself you are truly in union with Christ. We talk about it uh, in the catechism, you know, when, when we die, what happens to the body of believers? Their body remains united to Christ and does rest in the grave awaiting the resurrection. So right now your body is united to Christ. Otherwise there would be no hope for it. But indeed it is. We are in union with Christ fully. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5, we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Now that's a mystery uh, that if we preach through that, we'll have to unpack. But that is what he declares. The reality is we were once far off, strangers, aliens, distant from God. And yes, God's enemies, but now in Christ we have been brought near. Even now we are adopted into the family of God. What do we say to one another? Brother, sister. It's not just pleasantries or politeness. That is a reality, an eternal reality, that we are one in Christ and one with another. And this unity in this family, the family of God, is not based on what unites men and women in the world, employment or noble birth or intelligence or ethnicity. Those things are external realities, but they matter little in the body of Christ. You are bound to him, and he is bound to you. And we're all bound together as one in Christ. And he has bound us to the Father. God is our Father. And what's the reality of this? What's the outworking, and the consequence? That brings us to our third point. We are united so that the world may believe. Here we find Jesus nearing the end of his ministry in the midst of his apostles. He is drawing to a close his high priestly prayer. And he's praying for the church throughout the ages as he prays, he prays for unity. Make them one. This is vital. How vital is it? Jesus, Jesus thinks it's incredibly important. Look at it again at the text. He says, let me get back on the right page here. He says, verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, what? That the world may believe that you sent me. And then again in verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This unity is a means of testimony to the world. Blood bought and holy Spirit applied, unity in the church is essential 
to evangelism. You see what he's saying there? Can you get that? That the world may believe that you have sent me, that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you loved me. At Presbytery yesterday, we had several candidates, um, and they were asked the question about the necessity of the church. It's a worthy question for the candidate. What's, is the church necessary? What's, how important is the church? It can be asked in different ways. And the expected answer sounds something like this from our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, paragraph 2. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Is the church important? Is the church vital? Is it central in God's plan? Yes. Yes, salvation's in the cross of Christ, but Christ has saved a people to bring them together to be a church, and that as we live and relate in the world, that unity that we celebrate is a testimony that Christ has been sent from the Father. What was the objection as Jesus ministered? The religious leaders who were to be the scholars of the scriptures and to understand all these things, they, they objected to Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. I have come from the Father. They objected to that. That was ultimately they seized him and put him to death. And here we find Jesus saying, so that the world may know that you sent me, I pray for unity in my people. This unity only can be accomplished in Christ, as we've said earlier. And so we see Christ has entrusted the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel into the hands of the church. Isn't that not amazing? The greatest message ever to be proclaimed has been entrusted to the church. Oh, yes, there was a time when the angels came at the time of Christ, and they heralded to the shepherds that peace on earth and good tidings to men of, of uh, good uh, conscience. Christ came not to keep sending angels to proclaim the gospel. He sends the church into the world to proclaim the gospel. And he sends us to adorn the gospel with the beauty and the unity of Christ. Our fellowship of unity in the church makes a gospel impact on the watching world. Why? Because what Christ has accomplished in us is unique and no other can do. Children, I want you to think with me a little bit about a diamond. Perhaps your mother has a diamond in her engagement ring. A diamond is, I think we used to say, it's the hardest substance known to man. I don't know if that's still the case. It's incredibly hard. I mean, you take a diamond, and there's almost anything that we're going to find in our normal day of life, and you scrape that diamond over it, it's going to scratch it. Even metal. Diamonds are incredibly hard. I have a blade, a saw blade that's got diamonds encrusted in it, and I can cut concrete with that blade. Diamonds are hard. And if you want to know whether a diamond is a genuine diamond, perhaps I'm trying to sell you one. You say, well, I want you to prove to me that it's not just a piece of glass that you've got there. You take it and go across a piece of glass and just scars it right up. A piece of metal scratches. It's like, okay, I'm inclined to believe that what you have there is a diamond. Likewise, I'm telling you, if I'm telling you about the power of religion, the religion I hold on to, 
If I'm, gonna, if I'm telling you about what made me a new man and that it completely affects how I treat others, if I say that my God really made a difference in how I live and then you followed me around for a week and saw that I didn't act any differently than anybody else, I didn't treat people any differently than the way the world treats one another, you would be wise to question my religion, whether it's real. But if indeed you know, we follow Christians around and we see them living out what Christ describes here, there's a testimony in that. And Jesus makes it clear that this is what he would have accomplished to demonstrate the unity that we have in the Spirit. Last week we were hearing how Jesus sent us into the world, verse 18, 19. Jesus sends us into the world just as the Father sent him into the world. He sends the church. And we heard that this was our mission, and this is true. But the church for the last couple of hundred years has had this emphasis on personal witness. I've pressed it before, but I really was rethinking that. And in light of this text, and indeed some of uh, Sinclair Ferguson's exposition, this idea of personal witness, and indeed the other extreme is that it's the parachurch ministries that have no connection to the church. There's these two extremes of personal witness in the parachurch. And indeed, parachurches have often grown up because the church isn't doing what it's supposed to do. But the parachurch cannot be the church. The parachurch is not the church. And as we said before, what Christ is doing cannot be faked. So we've let these substitute step in for what Jesus is praying about. It is through the church, thus outside of the church, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. It is through the church that the world comes to know that the Father sent the Son. And if we rely on an individual witness apart from the church, then there can be a disconnect for the new convert from the church. And it's going to depend on the individual who's bearing witness to a new convert whether they understand the importance of the church, bring them into the church. Often that doesn't happen. And certainly parachurch ministries, if they see conversions, they keep them unto themselves. It's easy for an individual who's converted apart from God's ordinary plan to never really plug into the church. As Ferguson points out, that clearly Jesus' prayer is first answered at Pentecost. And the salvation that came in Jesus Christ resulted in what? What was the immediate thing that happened? 3,000 souls were added to the parachurch, my little clique or club. No, they were added to the church. And as the church grew, there was something that took place in that church. They were growing in love in their community. Paul goes on, or Luke goes on to describe how that they had things in common and they shared and they ministered to the needs of one another. And it was their practice on the first day of the week to, to gather together and they focused on the word of the apostles and the breaking of bread. And I believe it's in Romans 1 that Paul recounts that the world looking on says, see how they love one another. That's what Jesus is talking about, is we minister to one another. We have unity with one another. The world sees something remarkable. They say, see how they love one another. Now, again, Peter's words in 1 Peter 3.15 have often been used wrong. He says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason that you have hope within you. And we often make this about evangelism and individual activity. But Jesus radically upends this position. Jesus' prayer teaches us that it is the church 
family, not isolated individuals that God uses as his chief evangelistic instrument. The church together, bringing outsiders in. And the full effects of the gospel are best displayed and best seen when a transformed people live in Christian fellowship in biblical unity. That the world may know that you have sent me. When we're fractious in fighting, our testimony of Christ is harmed. The power of the gospel is overshadowed by our divisions. But indeed, when we live together as one, it is a powerful testimony. So the reality of what Jesus teaches in this prayer means that we should desire and delight to have more time together as a church family, not less. I know this application would going to cross some of you, but understand again what Jesus is saying here. The teaching means that we should prioritize our schedules to be present whenever the body gathers. If indeed it's through the body dwelling together in fellowship, in unity, that is a testimony to the world that they would know the gospel is true, we need to be together. And yes, we need to invite outsiders in. Or even as we've talked about with some outreach events, that we'd be out on the lawn somewhere relating together. We need to carry the beauty of what Christ has done to the nations. But it begins with us delighting to be together. That we would want to be with one another whenever we gather. And so it makes sense that we should have morning and evening worship. It makes sense that we should structure the Lord's Day for the keeping of the fourth commandment and refuse to let what the world does on that day crowd out the blessing of the things that come when the church is together. Things that can happen in no other place, in no other environment. It is to these gatherings then that we invite our unsaved friends so that they can see us live out the gospel and display the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Are you willing to pursue this as a body, the unity of Christ with one another? We have that. Well, let's look for more opportunities to display that. And I think as we continue growing in unity with one another, we're going to be excited we're going to, as it were, drag people in here. Come and see what the Lord has done. Are you willing to pursue this unity in Christ? Are you prepared to evaluate your priorities and make changes that are consistent with how Jesus prays for us? Can we make his priorities our priorities and follow his model for evangelism? For the church, one of the most common exceptions on the floor of our presbyteries, not just ours, but across the PCA, is exceptions to the Sabbath. We hear exposition on the fourth commandment uh, in rotation as it comes around, what, every quarter roughly, about every three months. Let it be our goal to conform ourselves to what God has required. Because when we're together on the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, and, and other times gathered in our homes, inviting neighbors that live near us, that they would see the unity that we have in Christ, God blesses it and the world sees. That brings us to the last point, this blessing of Christian fellowship. We live in a day when so many, perhaps we could say most, are suffering due to the priority in our culture that is placed on individualism. It's, it's on every score, almost just anything that's happening in the culture that makes us nauseated. It's this celebration of the individual. 
the individualist God, do whatever I want to do. And people are suffering from alienation and fragmentation. And indeed, this younger generation that's coming out there, they're looking for something solid, something meaningful. We're it. Not because of us, but because of Christ in us. It's no wonder that the world's such a mess. Sinclair Ferguson says, it's not the fellowship of the church family that non-Christians, no, sorry, is it not? No, I'll get this quote right. It is in the fellowship of the church family that non-Christians will most powerfully encounter the kingdom of God and new creation. You get that? It is in the fellowship of the church family that non-Christians will most powerfully encounter the kingdom of God and the new creation. Sinclair goes on to relate the testimony of a young woman who opposes the gospel in its resulting lifestyle. Sound familiar? Yet, very reluctantly, she finds herself at a gathering of a church family because of someone she knows has brought her. She hates everything she thinks these people believe. But she finds herself confronted with one question. How is it that I believe that these people stand for everything I hate, and yet while I am with them and watching, I feel that this is the way life is meant to be? I see it in the relationships with each other, in the harmony, in the atmosphere, in the children, in their parents, and in the young people's relationships with the elderly. How is it that they seem to possess the very things I lack? Why do I ache inside for what they have? My friends, that captures the world around us. We live amongst the people. They ache for what we have. We need to let them in. We need to invite them in. The Lord is setting a feast, a banquet feast, and he has sent us out into the highways and the hedges to compel men and women and boys and girls to come in that they might see the display of the gospel at work in us. And yes, be under the preached word, for it is ordinarily through the preaching of the word that God works by his spirit to convict and to convert sinners. But indeed, there's something marvelous when we dwell together. It's a little wonder that what this young woman was searching for was not found in the world. What she longed for, yes, indeed, what many long for is only found in Christ as he brings us home to the Father and invites us to himself and also to the Father. Then, and only then, as we yield to the Holy Spirit under the word, do we become this glorious picture of unity. Just as Jesus prayed, And the glory which you give me I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. A little example from Sinclair Ferguson. That's what happened. The glory of Christ was on display in his people. Maybe so in our midst. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do marvel and wonder that you could take such vessels as we are and use us for your glory, that through us, as you work in us, that Christ would be seen in our lives, how we live and how we relate, the fruit that we bear. Uh, when we're together especially. Lord, bless us. Father, we are grateful for the unity that we enjoy in our little flock. We are grateful for what you have been doing, and we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless it. Bless our individual efforts to invite people to come to our corporate assemblies, that they might see how we love one another, and indeed that they would know that you have sent your Son into the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 342, Christ is...